Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, April 12th, 2020, and this is show number 779. Well, we got a big show this week. We got a big live audience, man. Everybody's bored to tears. They're, they're all in the live show and they're being ridiculous. So you guys should come. We got people from uh, uh, what we got New Zealand with uh, uh, Stephen from New Zealand. And we got, um, let's see, we got, uh, I'm not sure where Shy is right now. We got Way West Basers, who's in, uh, uh, Michael is in Japan. And we've got Helma in the Netherlands and a whole bunch of people from the U.S. So it's a big party in there. You guys should come to the live show. It's really fun. Podfeet.com slash live, 5 p.m. Pacific time on Sunday night. Anyway, this week's Chit Chat Across the Pond Light was really, really wonderful. I asked Anthony Lemos of Audio Aperture Media to come on Chit Chat Across the Pond to explain mixers to me. Even if you're not into audio recording, I think you'll really enjoy learning about mixers from Anthony. He doesn't use a lot of jargon, rather he breaks down things in things down into simple terms that are easy to understand without a background in audio. I have never been able to figure out the difference between gain and volume, and Anthony's simple explanation finally clarified it for me. If you don't believe me, check out this testimonial from Twitter. Bamboozled by audio terminology, Potfeet has the cure with this superb episode of her Chit Chat Across the Pond podcast. Her guest, at Ethan Kane, has an amazing talent for explaining concept, complex concepts simply. Okay, that was from Bart, but still, he told me in a text message, too, that he thought it was one of the best Chit Chat interviews we've ever had. As always, you can listen to this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond Light in your podcatcher of choice, or you can listen directly at podfeet.com. This week, I had the great pleasure of being a guest again on the Clockwise podcast. Dan Morin and Micah Sargent were the hosts as always, and the fourth guest was Devendra Hardawar, senior editor at Engadget. As always, there were four topics. Dan asked how we help family and friends with tech problems when you can't be there in person. I had a great answer prepared, and then Dan taught me an easy, even easier way to do it than my method. My question was, technology is really cool and we all love it, but it seems like everything is fiddly. Is there any device, application, or service they use that is not fiddly? If not, what's the most fiddly thing you interact with these days? I got to tell you, the other people really got into this question. I think all of them mentioned their fiddliest and least fiddly uh, uh, thing, and that was super fun. Mike asked a question that completely confused me. He asked, Netflix will allow parents to remove movies and shows filtered by rating in a new update. Do you think you were helped or hindered by the relatively open new web of yesteryear? Now, it's not until I heard the other people answer this question that I realized why I was so confused. I think this part is really, really funny, and I'm not going to tell you why, so you got to go listen to it. Finally, Devendra asked us, do we need mobile-only video? Quibi is the only is the uh, latest service to try this, and he thinks it's a fail, but is the idea itself flawed? Anyway, if you want to hear this awesome show, check out Clockwise number 341, and I love the title. They named it The Fiddliest of Fiddly Fiddlers, and it's on Relay FM at Relay.fm. All right, let's get started with a review by Wing, who you might know by extension as Bart's better half. Social distancing, being what it is, has meant that everyone, particularly those of us in vulnerable categories, have had to find alternatives for our social needs. Thankfully, we live in an age of unprecedented connectivity, and the internet provides us a plethora of solutions. 
One of the options that I've dusted off is Tabletop Simulator. I picked a copy up during the Steam sales, but at full price it's only 20 euro, so probably about the same in dollars. At its core, Tabletop Simulator is a physics engine that lets you simulate a table and the things you might put on a table, which doesn't sound like much in and of itself, but one of my gaming troops has decided to use it to play a tabletop RPG. The game comes with built-in models that you can use, and you can download more from the Steam Workshop or buy them as DLC. Out of the box, you get enough tiles to build rooms, and put down monster tokens, and give players dice and figures, which is basically all you need to run a figure-based RPG in person, so it's an excellent facsimile for the real thing. Each of the players needs a copy of the software, one player sets themselves up as the server and invites them in, or hosts for the wild. The interface is relatively straightforward, though there are countless tutorials online for how to build better dungeons. Without knowing the first thing about the system, I managed to put together a primitive dungeon in five minutes. You place tiles on the board, right-click to lock them, place monster figures down on the tiles. It's relatively straightforward. If RPGs aren't your thing, and they are kind of niche, the game has some built-in board games like Chess and Go. It has cards and chips, so you can play poker and blackjack. And because you have your personal hand, you can see your cards, but nobody else can. There are thousands of downloadable board games on the Steam Workshop with nearly as many resources for RPG games. I have a few caveats. The game works better with a mouse, particularly if you're on a laptop. Picking things up involves clicking and holding. And if you want to pick up more than one thing, you right click while holding left click, which is tricky on a mouse pad. There's a keyboard command for this. I have no idea what it is because it's not intuitive. And there's only so many intuitive keyboard shortcuts that they can program. I had a lot of screen tearing, which is where one part of the screen updates, but not another. If you're a gamer, you're probably relatively familiar with this. I just had to turn on VSync and the problem disappeared. Being just a physics simulator, it doesn't enforce the rules of the game unless somebody does literally all of the programming work. And while it has a robust programming language, Lua, I haven't touched it and don't know any Lua, so I can't comment beyond that it exists. If you own a copy but haven't played it, now is the time. There are thousands of resources on the Steam Workshop that you can check out. So happy gaming. I love that review because I didn't realize things like that even existed. And it's uh, it's pretty cool that that kind of thing is is available that we can play with. Thank you, Wing. That was fantastic. When Lindsay found out she was pregnant, she asked us if we would come stay for a week with her and Nolan like we did when Forbes was born. She really wanted us there to help out and to keep Forbes out of their hair as they got into the rhythm of the new baby. We happily agreed. They stayed in isolation for two weeks before the baby was born and so did Steve and I. So when our darling Sienna was born, we packed up and moved to Lindsay's house for a week. As we were unpacking, Steve discovered that in our haste and excitement, He had packed all of his electronics in his backpack, except his laptop. I'm sure everyone listening understands the horror of that realization. I felt terrible for him. Now, it's not as if there weren't enough computers in the house. There were three Macs, two PCs, and a couple of iPads, but it was his Mac that wasn't there. Now, even if he could stand to go for a week without his Mac, there's no way we would have been able to do the live show without his computer. We ran Mimo Live from his Mac, then I wrote out all of my audio and video through to him. He, in turn, runs the broadcast to YouTube Live and to the Discord chat for the audience to join in. So he really, truly did need his Mac. As it turns out, right now there are pretty much no cars on the road, so I encouraged Steve to run home and get it, which is uh, was about 90 miles. 
He said when he got back, it was the most pleasant round-trip drive between our homes he had ever done. I think having the Tesla to drive was a good part of the enjoyment as well. So now I need to back up in the story a little bit. A few days before Sienna was born, Steve noticed that there was some light leak along the bottom of the display of his MacBook Pro. Got more pronounced in a day or two. His laptop is a 2016 13-inch MacBook Pro, which means it's outside of the Apple Care window, so this was pretty distressing. If Apple had come out with a new 13-inch MacBook Pro, it wouldn't have been the worst thing to get a new machine, but now this is actually the worst time to buy a 13-inch MacBook Pro because there isn't a new model. But then I had a distant flicker of memory that something the internet affectionately had called Flexgate had happened. I remembered there was a design problem on some era of MacBook where the cable connection from the computer half to the display half was too short and constant flexing and opening of the uh, opening and closing of the laptop caused it to eventually fail. I also thought that I remembered that Apple had extended their warranty program because of this problem. Armed with my faint memory information, Steve went on the hunt and found the support article about the problem. It turns out that Flexgate affected only one model and one model year. It was the 2016 13-inch MacBook Pro, the exact model that Steve has. Interestingly, it did explain in the article that the 2016 MacBook Pro was sold between October 2016 and February 2018. The sport article explained that the program will repair the affected device at no charge, which was awesome news. By the time we got the call that the baby was coming, the display issue wasn't too bad, just kind of distracting to see these bright, as Steve described as like stage lights at the bottom of the screen. When Steve arrived back at Lindsay's after driving three hours round trip, he was so happy to have his Mac back in his hands. Around that time, he idly said to me, I wonder how long the display stays like this and does it eventually fail? <laughs> yeah, you just heard the ominous minor chord of music come in there, didn't you? Dun, dun, dun. Clearly, he jinxed it, because a few hours after he got back, the display went out completely. At this point, I would have lost my ever-loving mind, but he was just kind of sad. Then we remembered that Nolan has a monitor in the spare bedroom where we're staying. We carry HDMI dongles, you know, just in case, so we were able to hook his MacBook Pro up to the external display, and it worked. He was banished to the back bedroom without a TV for entertainment, but it was better than nothing. We decided he might as well start the repair request with Apple while we were down there. We knew they would have to send us a box since all of the repair stores are closed. I suppose he could have gone to one of the third-party repair places, but I've never gotten a really good feel from any of them. Now, normally when I tell Apple repair stories, I refer to going to the store as visiting the table of sadness. Everyone at that table is sad because their devices are sad. I guess we're going to have to call this episode the box of sadness. To start the process, Steve hopped on live chat with Apple and explained the problem. It was one of those really frustrating examples of tech support where you know the person is chatting with many, many people because they take forever to get back to you after each response. The tech he was chatting with asked that he reboot the computer, and she asked him to then turn on a flashlight and tell her what he could see on the display. Now remember, the display is technically still functioning, it's just the backlight that has been turned off. So the flashlight can do a very poor job of showing you what's on screen. The good news was that with the flashlight, he was able to see his avatar for the login. The bad news is that his cursor was, of course, black, and the field in which he needed to get the cursor was a dark gray, so he wasn't able to see either one of them. 
There was no way to get the cursor into that box so that he could then type in his password. Because it was on a reboot, his Touch ID and his Apple Watch both could not log him in. Steve was not particularly happy that the tech had made him do this, as you can well imagine. I started fiddling around, moving the cursor to the bottom left by simply dragging down many times and then dragging left many times until I was certain it had to be in the corner. Then I tried sliding my finger on the trackpad until I felt, well, that felt like about I was near the middle, and then trying to go up until I felt like maybe that was in the box. (laughs) This didn't work, of course, but I kept trying it. Finally, with my fiddling around, things changed on screen, but in a kind of unexpected way. I managed to get it to show all of the possible logins on screen, not just Steve's. For some reason, it chose to select my login to his computer, and it actually put the cursor in the little box. So I was able to type my password in, and uh, it was in focus. I was able to log in, and that was very exciting. Once I was in my account, I was able to use fast user switching from the menu bar to select his login, and we were able to connect into his account. Now, we don't do high fives around here, but we were certainly close to it, and we were very happy about this. At this point, Steve got back in touch with Apple and explained the results, and they agreed that his computer needed to be repaired and agreed to send him a shipping box. I still don't know why they made him reboot and look at the screen with a flashlight. Could have just had him look at the screen with a flashlight. Anyway, uh, they agreed to send him a shipping box, and he worked the rest of the week at Lindsay's house using the external display and was able to run a successful live show. When we arrived back home, the box was waiting for him to ship his laptop back to Apple. Now, Steve wanted to make a full clone backup of his Mac before he sent it off to Apple. This is not his primary machine, so there isn't really a lot of data he actually cared about, but there's a lot of settings and applications and things he didn't want to set up again when he got his Mac back. There's always a reasonably good chance that when you uh, send your Mac out, you're going to end up with a new logic board. If you do get a new logic board, that means a new drive as well, so having a full clone backup can be really handy. We also plan to migrate his user account to a spare MacBook I had so he'd be able to play while his was gone for repair. Now, in order to do a clone backup, we needed to be able to see a screen on his Mac. I have a spare HDMI monitor at home, but I had loaned it to a friend of mine who's doing remote support for people. Steve has a 27-inch Apple cinema display that we figured we could use. We spent some time goofing around in Dongle Town, like at one point I had a mini display port to HDMI on one end and a USB-C to HDMI on the other end with an HDMI to HDMI cable in the middle. But at that point I realized the correct dongle which was mini display port to USB-C, was already connected to the monitor's cable. We were making things much harder than it needed to be, but it was fun. Anyway, we hooked up the 13-inch MacBook Pro to the Apple Cinema Display, and it worked. So far, so good. We bought him a copy of Carbon Copy Cloner, which I've been meaning to do for a long time anyway. We launched the app, and it came up with a familiar screen asking for full disk access and system preferences. Now, Carbon Copy Cloner is more fun than most apps in this annoying process. The developer, Mike Bombich, obviously has a sense of humor. In the screen where he explains how to give access to Carbon Copy Cloner, he gives you a little fish to drag into the system preferences window. There is no reason for this fish. It is only for the comedy. All right, so we've got our fish to drag. All we need to do is open system preferences. Can you guess where system preferences opened up? Yep, on the internal non-working display. 
Now, the annoying thing is that earlier in the day, system preferences had opened on the external display, and we made a point of going into displays and dragging that little white bar to the representation of the external display to make sure it was considered the primary display. So system preferences should have opened on the external display, and I have no idea why it reverted back to the internal display. At this point, we're really in a pickle. I'd like you to just think for a second, how would you solve this problem? How would you go get system preferences and bring it back to the external display? I started thinking, trying to get into system preferences without being able to see it, it's kind of like being blind, right? Luckily, I happen to have some rudimentary skills of using VoiceOver, Apple screen reader software for the Mac, and it was time to exercise those skills. Now, on a Mac with Touch ID, you enable accessibility options by triple-clicking the Touch ID slash power button. This brings up an on-screen menu with the option to enable Zoom, VoiceOver, mouse, and uh, other keyboard accessibility options, and changes to the display, such as inverting colors. Luckily for us, this menu came up on the external monitor, but the screen explains in audio how to navigate to the different options, so we would have been able to enable VoiceOver even if we'd been unable to see it. You can also launch VoiceOver by holding down Command F5. And once I had VoiceOver running, I used Command Tab to bring system preferences to the forefront on the invisible display. Next, I decided to cheat a little bit. On my own MacBook Pro, I brought up system preferences to the display preference pane so I could read along with VoiceOver. We got a bit lucky when system preferences opened directly to the display's preference pane so I didn't have to find it. VoiceOver also explained I was interacting with the toolbar. That becomes important. In order to navigate with VoiceOver, use what they call the VO keys. That's Control and Option held down at the same time. With Control Option held down, you had other keys to do different functions. For example, I could hold down Control Option and tap the right or left arrow keys to navigate around a window. I tried using Control Option right arrow and VoiceOver called out the buttons across the top of the system preference pane, such as the back forward buttons, the show all preference button, etc. So far, so good, but since I was interacting with the toolbar, when I got to the end of the toolbar, it just bonked at me. I needed to get out of interacting with the toolbar and move down into the preference pane. For the novice user, VoiceOver defaults to explaining to you how to do things. You can shut this off when you get good at it, but for me it's invaluable because I don't use it all the time. VoiceOver explained that to stop interacting with this toolbar, I needed to hold down Control Option but also the shift key and then the up arrow to get out of interacting with it. Sounds complicated and it's very hard for me to remember, but with the voiceover instructions spood feeding me, it's pretty easy to do. Once I had popped up and out of the toolbar, now I could hold down control option and just use the arrow keys to navigate around the preference pane. I heard voiceover read the word display to me as I moved around. Looking at my own version of System Preferences, I knew it was reading one of the four tabs at the top of the display's preference pane. I wanted to get to the next tab called Arrangement, so I held down Control Option and arrowed once to the right, but it didn't go to Arrangement. For some odd reason, Apple chose to next highlight the graphic of the internal display and simply say, Image. This is super dumb, Apple. Come on. This is the kind of thing that wastes voiceover users' times. You navigate to them to something they can't do anything about, and then you don't even label it. You could label it. You could say, this is a picture of your screen, like pretending to be your screen, but they don't even label it. All right, anyway, 
I hit control option right arrow again, and now I heard it say arrangement. Now, if I had done this with a mouse and I had clicked on it, it would have changed to that tab. But with voiceover, all I've really done is highlight the arrangements tab. I need to click it now. I need to select it. To, to select something with voiceover, you hold down control option and you hit the space bar. The audio feedback wasn't super useful here. It just said, you've selected the arrangement tab and that it was one of four tabs. All right. Well, I started using control option and hitting the right arrow key to move around in the pane. Eventually, it read out the instructions on how to change the primary display. That's a trick I mentioned earlier. It said out loud, to rearrange the displays, drag them to the desired position. To relocate the menu bar, drag it to a different display. I was curious what instructions voiceover would give me on how to drag displays without being able to see them, but when I moved past the instructions, it just skipped right over the display arrangement section. Now, you might think they skipped letting the blind user drag the displays around because it would be impossible to design a user interface to allow the blind to do that. But guess what? That's the wrong answer. Rogue Amoeba's audio hijack is totally accessible to the blind, and the main part of that interface is moving boxes around on screen. Rogue Amoeba figured out how to do it. Why can't Apple? All right, fine. Back to control option, right arrow, and I finally heard the checkbox to mirror displays. If I can check this box, in theory, everything on Steve's internal display will be mirrored to the external display. I can hear you yelling at your devices right now asking, why didn't you check this box the first time you messed around in displays? Well, I know that now. Anyway, once I was on that checkbox, I held down control option and I hit the space bar. It selected the mirrors displays checkbox and boom, the external display showed preferences, all the system preferences and everything that had been hidden on Steve's Mac's display. Now, Steve had wandered off at this point because it took me about a half hour to do this. I hollered down to him that I was a genius and that he had to come see that I had fixed it. He came up, he sat down in his chair at his desk and he said, how did you fix it? I pointed at the mirrors, dis mirror display checkbox and I said, I checked that box. And he instinctively moved his cursor over the box and he unchecked it. <laughs> Oh my gosh, you can't see me doing a face palm, but oh my gosh, I couldn't believe he checked that box again. Everything disappeared again. Now, while I wasn't maybe exactly delighted that he'd undone my half hour's worth of work, it didn't take me nearly as long to fix it as it did the first time. All right, I really did feel like I'd made fire that I figured out that I'm doing all of this using voiceover. That is, until I posted this article in our Slack community and uh, Michael Westbay posted... So why didn't you just close the lid? The Mac would have gone into clamshell mode and it would have moved everything up to the external display. Thanks. Really appreciate that now. But hey, it was cool that I used voiceover, right? All right. So finally, Steve was able to give Carbon Copy Cloner the privileges it needed and he ran the full clone backup to an external one terabyte Samsung T3 SSD. We then woke up my 2016 15-inch MacBook Pro, the one that just got, you remember, it just got the new battery and logic board and keyboard right after I got the 2019. Anyway, I launched Migration Assistant and I told it to migrate Steve's user to my machine and it failed. The uh, Migration Assistant said, this source is using a case-sensitive file system while your Mac is not. This was annoying and on behalf of Sandy, I was also annoyed that they didn't properly put a hyphen between case and sensitive in case-sensitive file system. 
Well, anyway, I checked in Disk Utility, and while both volumes were formatted APFS, somehow that external drive was case-sensitive. At least in Disk Utility, they put the proper, proper hyphen between case and sensitive. I asked Mike of Carbon Copy Cloner for advice, and he said, your only option was to reformat that backup drive to case insensitive and run the backup again. I looked at the options to erase the drive in Disk Utility, and oddly, there was no option for case insensitive. There were several case-sensitive options, and then just plain old APFS. I had to infer that APFS, with nothing else written after it, must be case insensitive. I reformatted the drive to APFS, I ran the backup on Steve's Mac again, and then finally we were able to run Migration Assistant on my Mac and bring Steve's account with all of its glory into that 15-inch MacBook Pro from 2016. He packed his 13-inch up in the box, Apple sent, and he drove it to FedEx. Here's where the story takes a crazy good turn. Steve handed the MacBook to FedEx late afternoon on Thursday. On Friday morning, he awoke to find a message from Apple from 3.45 a.m. saying they'd already received it. Even crazier, Friday afternoon at 12.30 p.m., they sent him another message saying it was fixed and was on its way back to him. Saturday morning, he got another message saying it would be back to him at 1.30 p.m. And at 1.15 p.m., the doorbell rang and a UPS driver had just dropped it off on our front doorstep. Now, while the driver was supposed to wait for a signature on an expensive item like that, and he didn't, I guess it was okay since nobody's allowed to leave the house, so he knew we must be home. From the time Steve dropped off the laptop at FedEx until it was back in his hot little hands was less than 48 hours. Isn't that crazy? Even if we had an Apple store open nearby, they definitely wouldn't have even been able to get us an appointment that quickly, much less actually repaired it in that length of time. More importantly, he has a gorgeous new display and the Mac works perfectly and he lost no data. I'm not sure there's any lessons to be learned here other than how useful voiceover can be in the oddest situations or how good Apple was in doing the repair, but I thought the whole story was pretty darn cool. I guess it was the box of happiness after all. Hello, Ellison and Oscilla Castaways. This is Joop from a windy home sheltering Netherlands. As a follow-up to your item on your podcast setup last week, I would like to give you a small review on a new microphone setup I bought recently. So I wanted a condenser mic with XLR connection, and you need a preamp because the condenser mic uh, uses phantom power, and I need a boom arm. With a little bit of Googling and YouTubing, I found the Rode Complete Studio Kit with audio interface. Amazon price here was 280 euros. That is including 21% VAT. Without the VAT, it is 231 euros and 40 cents. Rode gives a 10 year warranty. So for all what I read and heard, it seems a decent price quality ratio. The studio box contains a NT1 condenser microphone, the AI1 audio interface, a six meter long XLR cable, I guess that's about 18 feet, and a shock mount with pop filter and a USB-C to USB-A cable. All the parts feel fairly solid and hefty. The mic is all metal with a mesh top where you just can see the condenser part. Uh, 
I screwed it into the shock mount and of course the shock mount to the studio arm. The mic has no switches and toggles or buttons. It just has a gold colored uh, brand print up to indicate the front of the mic. And the mic is connected to the AI1 audio interface with the XLR cable. The AI1 audio interface is a small, I guess all aluminium box. I would say some six by four by one inch measurements. At the back, two balance outputs where you can connect some speakers for monitoring and a USB-C output. With the USB-C cable, you can connect the AI interface to your Mac or PC. In the front, from left to right, an XLR plug for your mic cable, of course. And as a side note, this XLR connector is a multi-purpose connector. So if you play, for instance, electric guitar, you can also use this interface to connect your guitar to your Mac or PC. Next to the plug is the volume control for your mic, with a small LED indicating the level, a green indicating a good level, orange you're sending too much signal, and red you're overdone it. This knob is also a button you have to push to use the 48 volts phantom power for this kind of mic, which is indicated with a small red LED. Next to this is a knob for the headphone volume. And next to that, a 6.5 millimeter jack for your headphone. The headphone volume button is also a switch. Normally there is a tiny delay between your own speech and when you hear it back on the headphones which is very annoying. If you push the volume button, you will hear the direct output of your mic without the delay. So that's it. For the few days I've been able to use this now, I'm very pleased with the product uh, and the build quality and the sound quality. And now I'm struggling to learn anything about recording and mixing and playing with Audio Hijack and GarageBand at the moment. I hope this all makes some sense and I wish everybody the best of health. Wash your hands and stay inside. Kind regards, Joop. And on Twitter I am Utgrunnen. That's my local language. Bye now. I love that. And man, what a great voice. What a great microphone. That Rode uh, microphone sounds definitely like something, uh, you know, you get into podcasting, you just start buying all kinds of mics. It's really, really a dangerous sport. For many years now, the PodFeed podcasts have been partially funded by the use of Amazon affiliate links. The idea is that if I talk about a product and I provide a link to that product on Amazon, a small percentage of what you spend on Amazon may come back to me. Unfortunately, Amazon has canceled their relationship with me. A few years ago, I got an email from Amazon telling me I wasn't doing it right. I forget exactly what problem they'd found that violated their terms of agreement, but in the letter they gave me specific wording I was allowed to use and things I was specifically forbidden to say. In fact, the phrase, a small percentage may go back to help support the show, was the wording they said I could use. The letter was fairly clear in what terms I'd violated and told me I had five days to respond or my associate status would be terminated. Obviously, I took this quite seriously, and I changed the language on my website, and I've been using the correct approved wording ever since. Then last week, I got an email from Amazon.ca, the, Can the Canadian Amazon Associates Program. They said two things. 
you have created special links to an Amazon page that does not contain any products. The second one was you are incentivizing others to visit the Amazon site via your special links by offering rebates, cash back, discounts, points, donations to charity, or other incentives, or by stating that customers can support you by shopping through your special links. And they gave me five days to comply or I'd be canceled. I thought I understood the first problem they described, and that would be my creation and encouragement of the podfeet.com slash Amazon link that took you directly to Amazon without any products. I could see their point that I guess if that's not what I'm supposed to do, I shouldn't have done it. I immediately took down that page. But the second half of this confused me. I wrote back in less than a day explaining I'd taken those things down, but I asked, how can I be truthful with my audience and yet not say that using the links helped me? In fact, I've been told to use that wording before. I explained that I thought it would be unethical to not tell you if I had an incentive to have used those Amazon affiliate links I was providing. I asked them for guidance on what I should do. And four days later, I received a cancellation notice from every Amazon Associates program with which I'd been doing business. I filed an appeal explaining that I had responded immediately, but I don't think I'm going to be hearing back from them. It's been more than a week since I wrote back. So I'm sad about this, but I must admit that I didn't read the terms of agreement every time Amazon sent them out, which was probably like four times a year. I'm sure they're right and that I wasn't complying with the terms, so I don't really have any hard feelings about it. It does make me sad to not have that revenue, but as I've explained before, I can't afford to do the shows without any funding at all. It's simply nice to have it not cost me money. So I give my heartfelt thanks to all of you who've made sure to use those links over the years. I'll still probably link to Amazon pretty often because personally, I really like shopping there. But you may see more B&H photo links than you did before. And for now, at least, those won't be Amazon affiliate or those won't be affiliate links to B&H. I just really like their products. Well, after that lovely news, you know how Pledge Break is going to go from now on. Not only, or no longer, I should say, will you enjoy alternating methods to help the show. Nope, it's all about Patreon now. Speaking of Patreon, when I posted this article about Amazon canceling me. James Tisdale immediately became a patron, and both Yope and Jonathan Scott increased their existing pledges. Do you know how awesome that is? As I've been saying lately, though, if you're on hard times, do not even consider spending any guilt calories feeling badly if you need to cancel. We will be fine, I promise, and the show will still go on. It's super swell that those of you who can support the show by going to podfeed.com slash Patreon do it and are supporting the show. I really appreciate it. But again, no guilt, right? But for those of you who do and those of you who can't afford to, thank you, thank you, thank you anyway. At CES this year, we learned about a unique baby monitor called Kubo AI from getkubo.com. Now, obviously, with two new granddaughters on the way, this topic was highly interesting to me. I thought the product was very intriguing, and Kubo sent me a review unit to test. As I mentioned earlier, we spent a week with Lindsay and Nolan and their new baby Sienna, so we set up the Kubo AI to watch her. Now, before you tune out because you don't have a baby, a grandbaby, or any interest whatsoever in something that wakes you up in the middle of the night and spits up on your clothes, bear with me because there is an angle to this you might enjoy. I say that because. Spoiler alert, 
Kubo AI is one of the highest quality products I have ever gotten to work with, and it sets the bar very high on what I think consumer electronics should be like. So if you don't have a baby or you don't care about babies, just imagine this is like a dog cam or a camera for monitoring your 53 Chevy in the garage. Maybe that'll give you motivation to enjoy what I'm going to talk about. In this case, the packaging, the physical hardware, the software, and the support were all superb. The obvious problem to be solved is that you have a new baby and you want to be able to obsessively watch the crib to see their every move. For 25 bucks, you can get a wise cam and Velcro to the side of the, uh, the crib and you'd be done. It's not a bad solution, actually. But every parent of a newborn lives in fear of sudden infant death syndrome, or SIDS. There's a lot of speculation on the root cause of SIDS, and current working theory is that having a baby face down can increase the chances when they're very young, and also blankets and stuffed animals covering their mouth and nose are suspect. When my kids were infants, their cribs were filled with blankets and quilted bumpers around the bars and at least 12 stuffed animals. Today's cribs are a barren wasteland of emptiness to protect the child. Now, you'll notice that the Kubo Baby Monitor has the term AI in the title, and that's not a gimmick. Kubo AI has face detection technology that will alert you if it recognizes that your baby's mouth and nose may be covered. A toy or a blanket covering your baby will trigger an alert to you, and you'll be alerted if they roll over face down. I think we've established a pretty darn good use case to take a look at the Kubo AI baby monitor. But let's start with the part that everybody listening would really enjoy, baby or no, and that's the packaging. We give Apple a lot of kudos for how great their packaging is, but Kubo has taken this to a whole new level. The camera itself is an adorable bird about the size and shape of a large pear. When I opened the box, there was a nicely drawn diagram of everything included in the box. Flipping that open revealed the little bird camera on the right and a large round plastic box. It was about a foot in diameter and maybe three inches thick. Every part was labeled on this diagram. Everything was packaged so it wouldn't get damaged, but without a lot of extra waste. There were way more parts to this than I expected, but as I described the configurations of this device, you'll begin to understand why. One of the coolest things about Kubo is that it has three different ways you can configure it. The round box I described that holds most of the parts has double use. It's also an essential part of one of the configurations. At its simplest, the Kubo camera can sit in a stand on a table and then plug into a wall via a standard USB adapter. The camera has a connector on the bottom, as well as this alignment locking flange thing. Pop the Kubo into the stand and it's locked in place and has the electrical connectivity to operate. The second configuration is to insert the camera into this L bracket that will hold it over the crib, and then you clamp the vertical bar of that L to the side of the crib. This is the configuration which I'll elaborate on in a moment. The final configuration is a freestanding camera, again with that L bracket. Now remember that big round box I talked about, the plastic box with all the parts? That serves as the base for the configuration of the freestanding camera. Now, you might be thinking a plastic box would never be stable enough for something you clearly don't want to have drop on your baby. The Kubo people thought of everything. Included in that round box is an old-fashioned water bottle. You know that kind that they used to put inside beds to keep them warm? You fill it up with water, and then you put it in the base, and your camera is no longer precariously perched above your precious child. Now, in our case, with a very energetic three-year-old brother Forbes in the house with Sienna, even this level of stability seemed a little bit risky, so we didn't actually test out that configuration. 
We proceeded with the installation of the Kubo AI with the configuration where we would clamp it to the crib. Now, this may be the mechanical engineer, mechanical engineer in me, but the design of the clamp was my favorite thing about Kubo AI. The clamp is this oval plastic piece that opens up to reveal two very large turquoise plastic nuts. Again, this sounds silly, but these plastic nuts are the perfect size to grab easily with your hands and turn without fear of stripping some little tiny small plastic thread like most products. Making them turquoise was also genius. It's pretty, and it looks like something that should be in a kid's room, but more importantly, it invites you to turn them. It's just like so obvious. They're like, oh, there's the clamp. Now, the vertical bar that supports the camera slides down into the same clamp and has a locking pin to hold it securely in place. There are little plastic pieces to allow you to wrap up any USB cable slack as well. Then you put the matching cover over it and it is neatly buttoned up and it looks quite nice. There's a mount on top of the L bracket that accepts the little bird camera and of course it locks into place with the alignment flange. There's a little lever underneath to release it so that isn't going anywhere on its own. Now, the camera doesn't rotate or, you know, it doesn't pan or anything like that on its own, but it does rotate up and down for the different configurations. Probably the only complaint I have with the hardware is that with the clamp, it wasn't actually possible to get the camera perfectly perpendicular to the crib, so we didn't get a nice rectangular image and the crib was kind of skewed in that image, but it was okay. We were able to see the whole baby. At this point, you pretty much get the feeling that I am in love with the hardware design and build quality. So let's move on to the software and setup of the camera. The Kubo AI software works pretty well for the initial setup. You create an account and then connect it to your Wi-Fi. To help you guide, guide you through the process, the little Kubo Birdie camera has a ring light on the side that lights up in different colors. I don't want to insult users, but it's pretty foolproof. I guess as long as you can tell dark purple from bright green from bright yellow to medium blue. If you're colorblind, it might be a little bit problematic. The Kubo software didn't show a list of networks from which to choose. Instead, you have to type in the SSID and password, which was a little bit annoying. It warned us that it could take as long as a minute to connect. While waiting for it, we got a notice from Lindsay's Eero router saying a new device had been detected, so we knew it had worked. Then kind of oddly, we got a notification from the Kubo op saying it had failed during setup, but it hadn't. We hopped out of setup and it was working perfectly. Since Kubo's strength is in detecting problems with the baby, they urge you to turn on notifications immediately, which of course we did. We could see the camera to view the baby real time, of course, and as an added bonus, we show it showed us the temperature and humidity in the baby's room. Lindsay and Nolan's house has been a real challenge to heat uniformly, so having that information is fantastic. The main screen shows recent videos, and below that, tips on how to set things up properly. Now, the text on the four tip boxes is wee tiny, and at first I was super annoyed at that, until I read the big text above it that said to tap on the tips to read them. Oh, well, okay. Anyway, the tips are super useful because they first tell you how to be alerted for the baby's face being covered up, and then the second one is how to dial those alerts back if your baby is a stomach sleeper. You can make it be for covered face alerts only. That's going to be useful, especially as the baby gets older and you can make, can't make them not roll over. The third tip is very cool. You can set up a detection zone that just outlines the crib. In our case, the camera was detecting well more than the crib, so they suggest dragging the turquoise blue rectangle around and resizing it until it, it exactly encompasses the crib and nothing more. 
They said that the artificial intelligence will learn your baby better if it has no outside distractions. On the Kubo website, they have a video showing another use for the detection zone. As your child grows and you use the camera in its tabletop mode, they demonstrated how you could monitor movement in front of an exit to a room to make sure you'd be notified if the little monster tried to make a break for it. Last night, Lindsay briefly put Sienna in the crib. I got a notification in the app telling me, Sienna detected. Then Sienna turned her head to the side and she moved out of the frame of the camera and I got a notification that said, Risk! Sienna rolled over, her face was covered. Then Lindsay took Sienna out of the crib and I got a third notification that said, Alert! Didn't detect Sienna! This was a great test of the Kubo system to see if it could really detect problems. The other thing this taught us was that we need to make sure the camera is rotated in its one axis so it can see the entire crib. I had messed around with it a lot and setting it up and moving it around, so I'm sure I left the camera incorrectly aligned, and that's why when she turned her head, she actually moved out of the zone of the camera. Now, one of the things I thought would be cool was that if you could just unplug the camera from the crib and move it to the den and then back without much faffing about. I tried that when I moved rooms, I had to reconnect to the Wi-Fi, which I didn't see why I should have to do that. Lindsay has an Eero network, as I mentioned before, so we were changing which router we were connected to, but Eero's are supposed to manage that for you and you shouldn't have to worry your pretty little head about it. I moved the Kubo AI back to the baby's room and it reconnected as soon as it booted up. I moved it back to the den and again, it asked me for the Wi-Fi information. So it was remembering the first location, but it wasn't finding the Wi-Fi on the second location the second time. I looked in the app and I found that they have a section to open a ticket to chat with them from within the app. I got a very quick response. They did try to be helpful, but I'm not sure they actually had the right answer. And I don't want to go into all the networking stuff and why that I didn't think their answer was correct. But we went back and forth a few times. But then the next time I went back to the Kubo, it had found the network all by itself. The only thing I can figure is that I didn't give it enough time to connect and didn't watch the little light ring long enough. The good news is that they were very responsive inside that chat window in the app and that the Kubo sorted itself in the end. The Kubo AI software allows the account owner to add other administrative users, which is awesome. So many smart home accessories do not allow you to have two different people, both of the admin access. Lindsay was able to add me and Nolan simply by having us scan the barcode from her app. Later, she removed my privileges and was able to add me back by texting me a link. I can also remove myself. Now, I sh you should note that I can't change a lot of things in the app she can, but I can set my own notifications, which is perfect. I wanted to talk about a couple of other nice features. Kubo AI, like many cameras, allows you to listen to and talk to the baby. I noticed when Lindsay was talking to me when I was in the room, her voice was very quiet, just as you would want it to be when comforting your baby remotely. If you have any trouble putting parts together on the Kubo AI, another cool thing is they have great videos. They don't have a lot of fluff and nonsense at the beginning telling you, oh, you know, music and here's the name of the product and everything. It's just like, I'm trying to put this part together. How do I do that? Boom, they jump right in and they show you how to put the parts together. Finally, if you go check out the show notes, because I'm a grandma, I put an article in the video captured by Kubo AI of newborn Sienna looking adorable in her crib while Lindsay and I poke her and try to get her to do something interesting because she's a newborn and they're just not that interesting. Adorable. I'll give you that. They're warm. They're fuzzy. They're adorable, but they just don't do anything. 
Anyway, the bottom line is that the Kubo AI is one of the best packaged, highest build quality, best documented device I have ever worked with. Their in-app support is very responsive as well. The software works really well and it appears that it does the most important function and that's alert you if your baby is in danger of suffocation. Kubo AI is not cheap at $300, but it's on sale right now at us.getkubo.com and on Amazon with a $50 off coupon, which brings it down to $250. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. Do not forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions. You can do that by emailing me at allison or at podfeed.com. Where did or come in the middle of that? Anyway, you can also follow me on Twitter at podfeed. And remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. If you have the money and can afford it and find value in the show, please go to podfeed.com slash Patreon and become a patron of the Podfeed podcast, which is a lot of alliteration. Or if you want to do a one-time donation, we have alliteration there as well, podfeed.com slash PayPal. If you want to join in the conversation, we have a lot of fun over on Facebook and Slack, whichever you like better. You can go to podfeed.com slash Facebook or podfeed.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Priscilla Castaways from all over the world. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.